Wait, so Sajid, what are these women rallying about outside this government office in Madhya Pradesh? Nico, these women are really passionate about universal basic income. And we're back here at the Global Inquirer with our final episode of the semester, where we take a look at case studies and intriguing stories from around the world to examine and explain how global trends are impacting real lives and international relations. I'm your host, Nico Marsage, and today I'm joined by Sajid Hassan, a government econ major, and Tyler Hinkle, a history and Latin American studies major. Sajid and Tyler, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Nico. Glad to be here. So last week, we looked at an interesting case study that was very local to all of us, very, very familiar here in Charlottesville. Now we're taking you guys all the way out into India, where we've seen this debate about universal basic income really expand. And we want to look at how the debate of universal basic income is really driven by the global trend of automation. Sajid, first off, what is universal basic income? Universal basic income is an unconditional cash payment that can be dispersed by a government to all the members of a population. And what's really interesting about UBI is that it doesn't matter what your income level is, um, the poorest in the population will get the same cash payment as the richest in the population. And this can be really beneficial for the most poor who really need that extra money. Right, but why would these women in Madhya Pradesh be advocating for universal basic income? Like, what are some of the driving forces here behind their advocacy and their rally here? So the women are a part of an organization called the Self-Employed Women's Association, and they promote the rights of low-income and independently employed female workers. And in the Indian economy right now, 94% of working women are actually employed in the informal sector, what's, what's called the informal sector. And within this sector, the job security is, is very low. But I really want you to stress on like, what are some of the driving forces here? Like, why does it matter that their job security is so low? We're seeing the trend of automation pervade really all aspects of the Indian economy, from high-skilled workers to low-skilled workers. And the Self-Employed Women's Association is simply trying to secure the rights of women who are struggling in terms of income, food, health care, child care, and, and shelter. But is this idea of universal basic income even feasible? That's a really important question to ask. But right now, the Indian government manages around 950 different social programs. And many concerns that Indians have nowadays is how effective these programs are at actually distributing the necessary resources to the people who need it most. So um, an example is the large number of farmers in India. Currently, India is rapidly urbanizing. However, around two-thirds of the population still lives in rural areas. And many of these farmers really depend on subsidies and fertilizer from the government. But what we see often is that the money that is supposed to end up with these farmers actually ends up in the pockets of corrupt bureaucrats or people really just with connections to the government. And what's amazing about the UBI proposal is it could really cut out this middleman in the welfare system. A pilot program had been, has been launched in India. In the state of Madhya Pradesh in 2011, the Self-Employed Women's Association that we've seen worked with UNICEF to provide the universal basic income to a certain section of the population. And the findings were actually very positive. It was very much in favor of the UBI policy. Some arguments against the UBI policy have been that 
if uh, members of the population get this money, they're simply just going to waste it and they won't be incentivized to work. But what, what this pilot program found was quite the opposite. It's that the individuals who received the cash payment were actually more incentivized to work and did not waste their money. But Tyler, I want to bring you in this conversation now. Like politically, how have politicians actually responded to these job losses? You know, you've seen India try to implement this scheme to make all of their welfare systems more efficient. But have these politicians actually been pushing towards universal basic income? So UBI was debated in the Indian parliament recently, but I think this is more of a grassroots movement. This is definitely seen with the Self-Employed Women's Association. UBI has only been implemented in local areas. Major political parties have taken a stance against automation. Some examples being the main party, BJP, which is the backer of the Prime Minister. BJP has said that they desire labor-intensive manufacturing, which is a part of hope to increase employment. The second largest party in India, the Indian National Congress, also has said that development is not about factories, but it's about the people. All of the six major national Indian parties have taken a stance against automation and putting the people first, hoping that you know there may be more job security and there would be more of a focus on employment rather than production rates. Many politicians may have seen a headline describing how an emphasis spokesperson said that up to 9,000 jobs are going to be displaced. This may be the reason why the reaction is the way it is. And it's really telling that a company such as Infosys, which is very rich, multinational, and highly developed, is still seeing the effects of automation. So it's not just about low-skilled manufacturing workers, but it's also affecting the lives of higher-skilled IT workers, for example. Right. And now bringing this on a global level, you know, we're not only seeing this sort of almost populist backlash against automation in India, but we're seeing it at a global scale. In the United States, we elected Donald Trump. And even in France, you know, you're seeing rising popularity of this anti-globalization, pro-populism type reform. But to learn more about how automation has been sort of impacting employment, Sajid and I sat down with Kerem Koshar, a professor of international economics at the University of Virginia and previously studied at Penn State University and worked at the University of Chicago. Professor Kosar, welcome on the show. Thank you very much. So we're talking about automation here, and we just sort of want to know what are the broad implications when companies actually choose to automate? Well, so for and foremost, that usually is doesn't happen too sudden. These things happen somewhat gradually, and, and firms learn the processes over time. Uh, so there's usually a transition where things are done piecemeal and, and different tasks are automized. An important uh, margin through which the economy automizes in general is it's not individual firms on a wholesale changing their method of production and automating, but rather the old, maybe more labor-intensive uh, firms with sort of older technologies die, they exit, and the new ones coming in from scratch use new technologies and more automation. So it's usually happening through the exit entry uh, margin rather than within the same firm. And has automation been, been happening over time, over the last you know, 200, 300, 400 years? Yeah, forever. As long as you know, we started using tools as humans, you can say the whole process is um, reducing the chores, the physical chores of production. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's been a long trend towards automation. But, but why are we talking about it so much now? Like, what is, what is different today about automation from 200 years ago when, when new machines were being made? 
That's a good question. I think maybe for the first time in in our lifetimes, um, now I think the, the well-educated people are scared of automation. So there's this fear that uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning is going to make a lot of these sort of otherwise um, skill-intensive uh, research incentive jobs also automated. Like machines will be programmed to learn and to go through data. So you, you hear a lot about entry-level, clerk-level uh, legal jobs, for instance, being now automized. These guys used to just go through, you know, skim over uh, huge books trying to find cases relevant, and now this can be done through machine learning. So I think for the first time, actually, elites are afraid of of, of automation. Well, and, and so what does this actually mean for these workers? Does this mean they'll be, let's say, displaced and it'll be extremely tough for them to find a job because they're so specialized? Or how will this sort of, how do you, how do you see this playing out? Exactly like you said, for people who acquired skills that can now be automated, they will lose those skills, right? Think about it as any given time, there is a price of experience. When you look at people's earnings over their uh, life, it goes up and it kind of plateaus around the age 50. Now think of that as the price of experience. When something comes in that disskills you, all that price of experience goes down to drain. In fact, it can even become negative if you are not adaptable. So at that case, companies prefer to dismiss those workers and maybe hire new younger people who, who are adaptable or know the skills to begin with. And your research that you did touched on some of these ideas of how transitioning into a job in the future. Yeah, that's right. Um, and that's a very intuitive story. Um, if you think about it, if you are a 50-year-old person who accumulated a lot of on-the-job experience, and all the routines and tasks that you mastered are now automated, well, you may be laid off or the company may ask you whether you would do the same job at a lower wage because now there's this alternative method of production. Uh, you take it or leave it. If you leave it and if you are unemployed, exactly at that age, it's kind of getting late to go back to school and acquire new skills, right? There's kind of a, learn there's a period of investment you have to make to get into a new, uh, uh, into a new job. So. It's the saying that, you know, you can't teach uh, old dogs new tricks. It's, it's mm -hmm. hard. So for a lot of those people, they're at the margin between, well, do I continue working or do I just drop out of the labor force and maybe retire early? Which, of course, is something unplanned many times. So they haven't, they are not ready for that yet. Sure. I mean, it's clear to me that demographics can play a huge role in people's ability to transition back into employment. But to really get an idea of how automation has been impacting workers in specific industries, I got on the phone with Dave LeDuke, the Senior Director of Public Policy at the Software and Information Industry Association, who are a trade association in D.C. that advocate on behalf of a lot of software companies like Oracle and uh, LexisNexis. So, David, welcome on the show. Thank you, Nico. Glad to be here. How are we seeing, seeing automation play itself out in the real world? Like, What are some of the biggest industries that will be affected by automation and specifically automation due to artificial intelligence moving forward? That's a good question. As you know, automation isn't a new phenomenon. Virtually all industries have already benefited from it in one way or another, as information technology has advanced over the last 50 years. We saw automation take root and advance in transportation and manufacturing, and it's moved into the service industries, including some of the healthcare examples. Mm -hmm. For instance, the automatic teller machine, or ATM, is a great example of basic automation in services. The ATM has enabled banks to expand their businesses into other areas, such as lending and personal investing, becoming a better, becoming a better partner for small businesses. 
an automated checkout. That's an obvious example of where we can look and see less humans and make an assumption that there will be a net loss of jobs. But that's not necessarily a fair assumption. The history of automation has taught us, including the banking example, that industries will use this as an opportunity to shift resources, particularly human resources, to provide better and more personal services. Right, so I guess, you know, it sounds like what you're saying is that automation isn't quite as daunting as it may be perceived and that these productivity increases can also be sort of supplemented by, by, by jobs and by human resources. And, and from SIA's perspective, you know, what kind of work are you doing to really highlight and address the concerns of politicians in Washington who are thinking, you know, look, automation is only going to, you know, uh, kill manufacturing jobs in my community and hurt employment. Like, what, what do you say to, to these politicians? That's a good question, Nico. First of all, standing still is not an option. That's our first step. It, it never is, really. Sometimes policymakers want to cement inertia toward innovation and evolution, but it's simply not possible. So we started, we're starting by working to explain that AI, uh, all technology, the benefits, and how they can play out. Uh, this makes policymakers more knowledgeable. Mm-hmm. Technology is often difficult to understand, and change is often difficult to accept. But ultimately, you can't have good policies if policymakers are ill-informed about technology innovation and afraid of change. So that's really the first part. Step two is reforming education. We need a much greater focus on math and science, or what's referred to as STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. We've been talking about this for years, but policies generally haven't caught up. SI has been a proponent of integrating technology into teaching and learning for decades, and we're just now beginning to see some of the changes. You know, it was great to get that industry perspective, but I sort of want to bring it back to how automation can impact income inequality. You know, you mentioned that not only low-skilled jobs, but high-skilled jobs would be affected by, by automation, by this increasing rate of automation. How can this contribute to income inequality then, or wealth inequality, because not only low-skilled workers, but now high-skilled workers are losing their jobs to you know, artificial intelligence or cognitive computing? Right. That's a very important question. I think that goes back to the politics of income inequality. Um, When you look at the statistics, you know, we always hear about the 1%. Actually, within that 9%, there's another 1% that's driving income. So things are actually extremely concentrated at the top. A lot of the people, like in that case, 99.9% is actually kind of within a reasonable um, range. That is, you can explain that through their education and so on. So now what these new technologies do, someone like the the founders of Instagram or Facebook, there comes, you know, young people, they stumble into a great idea and they execute it well. And at age 20 or 25, they make billions and billions of dollars. So that's kind of a new phenomenon. So in a, in a sense, that's not something that society would lose uh, on a large scale. But now the fear is that maybe people at the even 98th percentile, 97th percentile, some lawyers, some doctors, they may be disciplined. Whether we should fear f- from that for the long run or not, that's open to debate. I think we are a lot more adaptable than we think we are. So yeah, we've we've talked a lot about like winners and losers in this case, about how maybe high-skilled and even low-skilled workers could lose. But going into wages and productivity, how can automation not only improve productivity, but contribute to increases in real wages? Or can it in- contribute to that? Definitely. That's what it does. Let me take a step back and maybe talk a little bit about the historical background, because we all know that um, 
go 100 years or 150 years back, um, the majority of the U.S. workforce was working in agriculture. Um, so there has been this slow trend of replacing them with, uh, with machines, with tractors and combine harvesters and whatnot. So I don't think anyone now laments or looks back nostalgically about those lost farm jobs. If you ask those people who were losing them at the time, probably they did live transitional issues. But a lot of them also were probably happy about, you know, replacing their backbreaking jobs with, with machines. And they were happy that their kids now move to the city and do new things rather than being stuck in the farm. The same thing happened during Industrial Revolution. So now this is happening again. I think these new technologies will free us from actually the most boring, repetitive, routine types of jobs. And it will enable us to do things we cannot even conceive of now. So now coming back to the income inequality question, when you, when you find a good idea now, when you turn it into a good business model, the scale of the market that you can take it to is huge. So the returns to good ideas have multiplied by leaps and bounds. So that means people who either get lucky or either smart or do something really well are going to reap great benefits. Is there also a danger, though, to the fact that you know, with something like universal basic income, the government is the whole welfare state and provides a lot of a lot of benefits for individuals, but they could become completely reliant. Is there danger in that? Oh, absolutely. This is why where it's done and how it's done is really important. I think the fear here, like you said, would be in, in a dystopian, uh, quasi-authoritarian setting. These things are handouts from the ruler, and it's 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 seen as, hey, this is the payoff. If you vote for us, if this region doesn't vote for us, maybe we will play with your with your basic income that is allocated to that area. So it has to be absolutely administered by a competent, depoliticized bureaucracy. So it basically takes a modern uh, democratic welfare state that is well supervised and has the institutions. The idea of those kinds of transfers in many developing countries actually led to vote buying and corruption and authoritarianism. Yeah, so we brought up the role of universal basic income and how the government could maybe provide income for all of its all of its citizens, but on a more broader scale, what else could the government be doing to kind of help lessen the income inequality and some of the social tension that is arising as a result of increasing rates of automation? I think where the government can contribute most is there will be two jobs that will never be automated and that are actually really fulfilling um, in terms of, sort of making us happy. One is education and one is healthcare and elderly care. So basically we're getting to a stage where we have long stages of education because this new economy requires new skills and we have to bring everyone up to that level. And then we have to do a lot more helping each other when we are sick, taking care of each other when we are sick or when we are elderly. These, these are essentially human jobs. And the scale of these jobs, the scale of these sectors, or at least their financing is so big, probably government has an important role to play. But how do we do it without stifling innovation and sort of by keeping the incentives right and performing well in these industries? That's kind of the holy grail question. It's not all about income at the end of the day. We may find the best scheme for compensating people uh, monetary wise, but that doesn't necessarily mean that makes them happier. So ultimately, it's it's the pursuit of happiness, right? It's a having fulfilling life, and work plays big time into that. 
we don't work just to uh, make the you know uh, ends meet, but rather to to have a fulfilling life and 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 job. So when people lose those jobs, many times they lose their colleagues, they lose a part of their identity. So now, I don't think we know enough about these things. There's probably an aspect that has to change. We have to become more amenable to the idea that all your life you're not going to work in the same place. So maybe even at younger stages, growing up with the idea that you know you may change jobs, you may have to move for that and just be ready for it. That's a fact of life. It's probably a good thing because we definitely don't live in uh, in a society like 100 years ago where you just stay in the village you were born and you just do the same thing that your father and grandfather has done. Now things change at a faster pace. So I think just being ready for that, being flexible, being um, having more adaptation capability are things that people can be prepared for. In that case, we would replace the meaning of life through work to other things, like it's at the end, or interactions with our friends and family, the, the times we spend with them, how much we read, how much we travel. So the good thing about automation is it's going to create an immense amount of wealth and free time to do those things, which I think are a lot more fun and better for yeah. building up your identity rather than than just defining yourself through work. But then how do you try to convince someone, let's say, that has recently lost their job, that, look, you know, these interactions between human beings... And the communal value in just, you know, living in a certain area, interacting with your family, helping your grandmother out. How can you tell someone that those are more valuable than the money that they make from week to week? Oh, you touched a good point. That's essentially what culture is at the end of the day, right? And culture changes way slower than technology. And that that's the, uh, at the bottom of things, this is, I think, what we are discussing. Technology is changing fast, but the way we deal with it which is our culture, the way we organize ourselves, which is our governance, they change very slow. These things are very slow changing. It's very hard to overhaul them. So the jury is out on how the transition will be, I guess. We can say these things, it's easier said than done. But yeah, coming back to what we talked about before, say it to a 55-year-old male who has defined himself through his work all his life and now he's is kicked out. That's a very hard thing. So I guess it's up to us to sort of try to define culture and how we view welfare and how we view happiness towards the future. I agree. So now moving into the, our favorite part of the segment, our, our crystal ball. Tyler, what do you think is the future of automation? You know, What are some solutions to automation and how can we see automation being played out in the future? Well, Nika, I think it's really important to look at the current economy in India, which shows that more than half of the economy is based on the service sector. And so the future for India with automation is not so grim in that a lot of the focus is on these new jobs that are arising in the service economy. And it's just a struggle for the people in India to transition into this new economy, but also other people also having trouble transitioning into this. So it's not as grim as it may be perceived, but, you know, Tyler, you mentioned on a very specific, you know, India scale. Sajid, on a broader scale, on a global scale, what are your thoughts on how automation will affect income inequality or how we should be providing solutions to automation displacing employment moving forward? Yeah, right, Nico. Automation is affecting a lot more than just developing economies like India. We're seeing the UBI debate, for example, in response to automation in, in Finland currently, they're running an experiment 
Um, in Switzerland last year, they had a vote which actually failed um, in the referendum. And I believe they're also debating it in Canada as well. The effects of automation are really spreading across across the globe. And in my opinion, this is a good thing. I don't think automation should be reversed or slowed down because ultimately it's going to open up job opportunities for different sectors in the long run. And I think lifelong learning is, is a good thing for the economy as a whole. It will make more firms and more people more productive. I do agree, but you know, from sort of like a cultural aspect, people will get displaced from their jobs and low-skilled workers will not have jobs in the future. And I think there's something incredibly important in the fact that, you know, we, we feel some sort of, you know, strong relationship to our work. We feel some sort of value between the work we, the work that we do and the wages that we make as a result. And, you know, if, if I'm, if I'm a worker and I'm being completely displaced, I have no job. I, I feel like I would lose some sort of, some sort of dignity. So for me, as a culture, as a society, we have to start changing the way we look at work. You know, work doesn't have to be defined in the wages that you earn. Why can't work be defined in the art you make, helping out your grandmother? You know, why does welfare have to be defined in wages? Why can't we move towards a society that defines welfare and happiness in terms of, not necessarily in terms of wages, but in terms of how we interact as human beings? All right, well, that's it for our final episode of this semester. Thanks for tuning in, and we'd love to hear your feedback. How do you think the role of automation will impact income inequality or the social structure of our society? And while you're at it, you can go ahead and follow us on Twitter at underscore Goal Inquire, like us on Facebook, and let us know what you think. We're now on Apple Podcasts. And finally, I want to give a shout out here to not only Sajid and Tyler, but also Professor Kosad and David LaDuke, and Odyssey, the local Charlottesville band who you heard here today. See you next semester.